the witch trials, all of that, that was something that's been happening for thousands and thousands of years and millions and millions of women have died as a result of just expressing themselves and being who they are and expressing their connection to creation and creative energy. So the aspect of misogyny and suppression underlies our culture. Citizen Podcast. Welcome to Citizen Podcast. I'm Carrie Kelly. Today we're talking with the democracy goddess herself, Heidi Seek. She's the founder of Vote Pro Choice, longtime advocate for reproductive rights, and a badass feminist. And when she's not getting pro choice candidates elected or lobbying Congress, she's throwing down alongside me on the street, in the Capitol, at the Supreme Court, or wherever we are needed. She's here with us today to help us make sense of the recent abortion bans that are sweeping our nation. Heidi reminds us that this is nothing new. States have been rolling back reproductive rights and controlling women's bodies for over three decades. But we are, in fact, a pro-choice nation, with over 70% of Americans in favor of abortion rights. We just need to get organized and get engaged. And like Elizabeth Warren, Heidi's got a plan. In a recent article, Lori Penny wrote, This is not a moment to mince words. This is a moment for moral clarity. Women's personhood is not conditional. Women's sexuality is not shameful. The only shameful thing, the only thing that no citizen who believes even fractionally in freedom should tolerate is a world in which women are treated like things. We will not tolerate that world. And with Heidi in charge, we just might win. Check it out. Welcome, Heidi Seek. I'm so glad you're here. Hello, Carrie Kelly. Not just because you're my favorite person on the planet, because you are, but also because you're the person I go to when I get really scared about what's happening in our country whether that's an election or what's happening right now with all of these um, state rollbacks of abortion rights. And so I'm so grateful that you're here to help us make sense of this moment and to tell us what the fuck to do, because we're, we're ready to do the thing. So welcome. <laughs> is is that the most intense welcome ever? <laughs> Thank you. Heidi, welcome to Citizen Podcast. Please save us. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm happy to be here. Well, look, I know um, we are clearly in a moment right now around abortion and reproductive rights. And for as long as I have known you, you have devoted your life, your career, your 30-year career, um, your rage, your fury (laughs) to fight relentlessly against what Rebecca Traster describes as the steady, merciless, punitive erosion of reproductive rights. And I've just read your blog today, and I know that you you basically said in your blog, where have you been, <laughs> all of you people getting enraged? Um, this has been happening for a really long time. It's been brewing in our country for many decades. And so I'd love for you to tell us about your journey um, and what you've witnessed up until this point. Yeah, it's been a journey. There's no doubt about it. What's so curious about where we are right now as I wrote in the post that you're referring to, is so many people are infuriated, angry, scared about this Alabama abortion ban that was recently passed and signed into law, and the additional Georgia six-week ban, and all the other pieces of legislation that we're seeing being passed and enacted across the country right now. What's so curious about it is that this has been happening for many, many decades. And that is what I feel both grateful for, but also a deep sense of responsibility and contemplation about really. You know, I, I would serendipitously, when I was a kid, I grew up in, um, in Nebraska. And by nature of mentorship, my first job that I got right out of high school when I went to college was with, was at Planned Parenthood in Nebraska. And it was around 1991 um, where I was both working at Planned Parenthood and I was working in the Unicam role at Nebraska 
uh, in the Nebraska State Unicameral as a legislative page and a staffer to the Health and Human Services Committee. And the first partial birth abortion ban was introduced in Nebraska. And because I had had the context of working in Planned Parenthood and I was listening to the introduction of this bill, I was really struck by the complete disparate stories between what I saw of the women who were coming to Planned Parenthood to take care of themselves, to get reproductive health care services, to get birth control, to decide what they wanted to do with their bodies, to create trajectories of choice for their pregnancies um, versus what the story of what this legislature was talking about, which was actually a medical procedure that was didn't exist and these really graphic stories of what happens in later term abortion that I knew wasn't true. Mm -hmm. This was 1991. Mm -hmm. And that was the beginning because we knew at the time that that was when the conservative infrastructure was really starting to invest money into making the issue of abortion a organizing principle for a small group of people in the Republican Party to make sure that they stayed with the party. And they have been honing their strategy ever since. And so for me, it's been a unique journey of um, being like, (laughs) I think I said this the other day, I don't know if this is an appropriate analogy, but like the Forrest Gump of repro. (laughs) (laughs) Because, you know, I fast forward to 2011 and I'm working in Ohio um, on, a, on a campaign and I was working with NARAL Pro-Choice Ohio and working out of an abortion clinic in Cleveland. And a week after we had reelected President Obama, the Ohio State Legislature called a special election to consider the first so-called heartbeat bill, mm-hmm. um, which was a strategy of legislative, um, a legislative strategy to try to reduce the concept of viability to overturn um, or to create an abortion ban, essentially, in a the country. And they, were, they were testing that strategy. And again, I'm sitting in a state capital in a state in Ohio thinking, what the hell is going on? Mm-hmm. And over the course of the last 30 years, because of these serendipity, serendipities of my life, I've been watching the evolution of these bills. Mm-hmm. So, And the erosion well, of our rights. Yeah. And it's been happening as a slow boil for the last 30 years. Since the moment Roe v. Wade was decided in 1973, um, there has always been an attempt to chip away at our access to reproductive health care services. And what I want folks to really understand what this is, a, this was a, a focused strategy really, um, really generated out of the Reagan years of trying to keep a small minority of people connected and activated into the Republican Party. Period. Well, and when you say small small minority, what you mean is that we're we're really a pro-choice nation. Yeah, yes. That's that's what is so frustrating about all of this is that over 7 and 10 70% of Americans do believe that there should be access to abortion specifically that is safe, legal, accessible in their communities and respectful without shame. This includes Republicans, Democrats, independents, and that has been growing. That number has been growing. And so what's really um, frustrating for me is that the investment in this anti-choice minority group of people has created a perspective that this is actually a polarizing issue, that it is um, mm-hmm. somehow there's, we're half and half, that it's, a, it's contentious, it's controversial. It's a wedge. But the reality is that we, in fact, human beings, the people of America, do have an experience of desiring reproductive freedom and bodily bodily autonomy, and that's across the board. Mm -hmm. And we have to really understand that the other, the anti-choice minority and the investments that they've made have been extremely effective and strategic in creating a false narrative of what's really the truth. Mm-hmm. And, and what I what I hope that we can really have a conversation about now in this country is what is the truth of our lives? Mm-hmm. What is the truth about reproductive freedom for our families and ourselves? And what's really going on here? 
And um, I'm grateful for folks starting to wake up. And I'm, I'm sorry that it has to be such an extreme situation because it is an extreme situation. And we've evolved in a very, uh, a very dire, to a very dire situation, both in terms of our constitutional situation, but also in the way that we've let this issue be mm-hmm. overtaken by a mm-hmm. group of people that don't actually represent who we are. As Which people. seems to be like a theme in our country that we've been asleep at the wheel, right? And since 2016, nothing new is happening. We're just, the, the veil has been lifted and we're, we're actually finally seeing it and being, I think, shook to, um, to wokeness. Um, yeah. Right. That that this is happening and this has been happening. And and as you just mentioned, a lot of this strategy has been seeded over time. And, and I think what we're just seeing is now the snowball effect. Um, and 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 it is really a snowball. Right. Like, um, you know, we're seeing the most aggressive abortion bans since Roe, yeah. um, which it feels like it's sweeping the states like a contagion, quite frankly, Georgia, Alabama, Missouri, Ohio, I think eight states. Um, in total have passed bills in 2019 so far. Is that right? Is it eight or nine? Yeah, uh, but there's also been 30 restrictive bills that have passed in the last year. Um, These are not new. There's been thousands, thousands that have been introduced, enacted in one house or another. Some have been actually passed. These include restrictions like uh, mandatory ultrasounds, waiting periods, just making it more difficult for people to access reproductive health care services. And it's been it's been happening over the past couple of decades. So and how me, many states have like some kind of restriction? So that, that's that's sort of like waiting on row. Right. So the scariest states are six states and it used to be five. And now we've had two more pa- or used to be five, we have had one more pass that have what are called trigger trigger laws, meaning there are pieces of legislation that are sitting on the books in the states that if Roe is overturned, abortion will be immediately illegal and there are very, very punitive uh, punitive punishment to, to people, women, um, people who provide abortions in those states. So the one that's the scariest to me is a trigger law that was passed in 2006 that's 2006 in Louisiana, which says 10 days after Roe v. Wade is overturned, abortion will become illegal in Louisiana. The punishment is a felony conviction to someone providing an abortion or assisting an abortion that includes a $100,000 fine and 10-year mandatory hard labor camp. And they the state legislature in Louisiana in 2006 removed the exception for rape or incest that was part of the templated legislation that had been provided by the conservative infrastructure. So that has been on the books for 13 years. So, and so, and now we're seeing more of those kinds of, of bills Correct. actually pass. And so you actually broke this down brilliantly in your blog slash manifesto. We're going to actually, for those, for, for those of you that are listening, this is going to be included. It'll be clickable in the podcast, but I just want to run, run through this list that you gave us. Cause it really does demonstrate a very, um, 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 thought through strategy <laughs> over time, right. To, to, um, to, to prepare states for the, for the overturn of Roe v. Wade. So we have nine states um, that have retained their unenforced pre-Roe abortion bans. We have the six states that you just mentioned that have post-Roe laws to ban abortions that would be triggered the moment Roe is overturned. Five states have unconstitutional post-Roe restrictions that are currently blocked by courts, but could be brought back in effect um, if Roe is in, in fact overturned. Seven states have laws that express the intent to restrict the right to legal abortion to the maximum extent permitted by U.S. Supreme Court in the absence of Roe. Um, and then you have this other bullet on here, which blew my mind, which is that women are women in the U.S. are currently serving time in jail for inducing miscarriages. Yeah, um, there's a story of a woman named um, Priva Patel. She was 26 years old, and I think she was 23, 24 weeks pregnant, induced a miscarriage in Indiana. Um, she was charged with murder. She served 18 months in jail with a 20-year sentence. And that was courtesy of Governor Mike Pence and the state legislature mm-hmm. of Indiana. And I think one of the things that's most important to understand is that in order that happened in 2016. 
yeah, in the United States of America. This isn't just maybe yeah. possibly in the future. Yeah, this, this, this happened and it is happening. Um, and so when we think about the structure of our political system, this is not new. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's something to be thought to think about. I think the most important point is that 57% of the country currently lives in a state that's hostile or not supportive of their reproductive freedom. So that means that depending even though on where- 70%, even though 70% of Americans um, believe in abortion rights. Yeah. So that means depending on where you live, so much is contingent upon your zip code. Depending on where you live, you may or may not have reproductive freedom now. So that's where we see these, these total abortion bans. We see these six-week bans. And the fact of the matter is women in these particular states, or I should also say uh, we want to include our transgender people in this conversation because access to reproductive freedom and health services are so important to trans people that access to families um, are, it, it, it's detrimentally limited in our country currently. So, and yet, and yet abortion is still legal. Well, it's constitutionally protected. So can you explain sort of the difference between the two, right? Because I do think people are, are getting confused between yeah. like where, where it stands. And then I also would be curious around like, how do people find out based on their zip code, what the law is in fact? Yeah. Um, so we know that Roe v. Wade does constitutionally protect abortion, but subsequent Supreme Court decisions, particularly Casey versus Planned Parenthood decided in 1992, does allow for certain limitations. And that's been really what's opened the floodgates for states to put limitations on access. And And they've deferred those limitations to states. Yeah. And so lots of state, state legislatures have been creating barriers to access those waiting periods requiring an abortion clinic to have um, certain um, levels of like a like be at the standard of a surgery center that required them to shut down to require doctors to have admitting privileges it's all just a strategy to limit access and that's been happening over since 1992 actually so access has been limited in these states and it's been a state issue so Now that Roe v. Wade is at risk, and what we need to understand is this abortion ban in Alabama was never intended to be implemented. Never. And and the six-week ban in Georgia and the other bans have never intended to be implemented because they are unconstitutional on their face under the context of Roe. So these were strategies by the anti-choice minority infrastructure to directly try to overturn Roe in the Supreme Court. They are emboldened by the fact that we have now a Supreme Court after the confirmation of the political operative Brett Kavanaugh, a Supreme Court that is amenable to the overturn of Roe v. Wade. So the acceleration of these pieces of legislation are a strategy to force to, a case to force a case to the Supreme Court. How- now here's the really scary part. There is all there are already 20 cases that are making their way through the federal court system to be considered to reach a place where they can be considered by the Supreme Court. So I I say this very um, respectfully and also without without any kind of um, filter that it is very likely that we will lose Roe v. Wade possibly soon, but probably by next June. Because of the pipeline of cases that are in line? And the fact that Brett Kavanaugh is sitting on the court. So a lot of folks in the reproductive rights movement aren't willing to make that statement so clearly. And a lot of folks don't want to believe it's true. They want to say things like, oh, John Roberts will never allow that to happen. Or they won't do it in 2020. Or that's never going to, that it's just not possible. Or they'll just chip away. But there are some, there are some indications that give us quite quite a a prediction that that is in case that is in fact the strategy Mm -hmm. 
So mm-hmm. that really seems real to, to me. Take a moment. Yeah, we have to take a moment and just be like, okay, this is really happening. And I, I say, I say this from a place of reverence, as a person that's been watching the unfolding of the system for thirty years in a place from inside the system and inside communities that haven't had access and watching these state legislatures on the floor of these state legislatures and also being present for the confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh. Mm-hmm. I mean, you and I were there together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We know what we were fighting. We knew mm-hmm. what we were fighting for. Yeah, that's why this doesn't surprise me. I mean, like it felt like this was at stake when we laid our bodies down on the floor of the Hart building. That's right. And when we cried our eyes out when he was confirmed. That's right. We knew that this and was hanging in the balance, not just our dignity, but actually like control of our bodies. That's right. And it was so much more than uh, his, the allegations of sexual assault from Dr. Ford. It was that we knew, those of us who'd been watching the system and marginalized people and people who ha- did live in places that didn't have access to reproductive health care services and had seen the transformation of our access over the course of the past few decades, we all showed up at the Senate Judiciary Committee to protest this because we were, we were expressing our lived experience. And this was before we even knew about the sexual assault allegations of this man. And I think what was so frustrating is that we could see it just that first day. I remember when I walked into the Senate Judiciary Committee hearing, I was the first person, the first member of the public that walked in that that room that day. And I got that first ticket and I was, you know, the third person to get arrested and we walked in and I saw I saw Senator, the chairman Grassley, and I saw Jeff Sessions, and I saw Brett Kavanaugh walk in, and I saw this small group of men who were hell-bent on coalescing power and taking our rights away, and surrounding them were all of the women and the senators that were there, the women senators, and the people in the room, and the press, and none of us wanted what they were determined to do, but they were determined to mm-hmm. win. Mm-hmm. And I knew that it was an uphill battle for us and that we would have to do whatever it takes. And that's why we fought so hard. Mm-hmm. And that's why we're where we are. So we, 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 we deserve to be outraged about what's happening at the state level, but we really need to keep our eye on the prize, right? We really need to understand that this is, these are tactics um, to, to force a decision on Roe. Um, yes. And so what does that mean? Like, how do we as a movement prepare ourselves um, for for defending Roe for for what's coming. Yeah, it's a that's a deep question. Um, of course, in 2016, I brought all of my passion and fury together to create the platform that I am so mm-hmm. honored to be co-founder of, which is Vote Pro Choice. So my focus, obviously, is based on the strategy that I I am hopeful will help. Mm-hmm which is we have to honor the fact that Roe is at stake. We have to honor the fact that the contagion, as you said, has happened in the States. We also have to honor those stories of women like Preva Patel who came up against elected offices like sheriff or coroner or public defender or district attorney or a judge that thought it was appropriate for her to be put into jail for making a decision about how to Um, decide the trajectory of her future, Um, that we have to honor the fact that the the work is actually in local and state elected Mm -hmm. offices, Mm -hmm. that these are the people that have decided to make these decisions for us, and they are representing a minority of people. So for me, I believe our focus has to be on electing the right people, pro-choice people everywhere. Yeah. And and the, the, the joy of it, that this is the joy and the hope of it, is that because we are a pro-choice nation, because people are waking up, because Republican women and, and independent women and even all the men are realizing that this is crazy what's happening legally and legislatively, that folks are open to electing pro-choice candidates in any election everywhere, mm-hmm. from school board to Senate, from PTA to president. They all, we all have to be focusing on those elections. Well, and your vote pro-choice guide is just 
is just the most, I think, badass voters guide out there. It, it runs all the way down the ballot and it tells you everything you need to know about every yeah. elected office possible. I don't know how you pulled that off, um, but it does. It, it is like one of the most, I think, thorough resources out there for not just choosing up ballot, but for, for actually making really responsible choices all the way down the ballot. And we're now seeing the the impact of actually not voting down the ballot, whether it's yeah. because we don't know or we're too busy or it's inconvenient or we're conflicted, it, it, it's, it, you know, we're paying the price now. And Stacey Abrams even just said recently that bad policies like the forced pregnancy bill is a direct result of voter suppression. She was talking about Georgia. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm thinking that if you look at all of the states that are passing these bills, right, some of them have the highest rates of voter suppression. And some of them have the lowest rates, by the way, of women in power. Yes. And here's, here's what we have to realize. Again, going back to my experience in Nebraska, the anti-choice minority and the conservative movement have invested in, in these races, in leadership development, pipeline development, and elections at the local level for decades. They've been doing this for roughly 30 years, about the time I started serendipitously. Um, and so we are up against um, we're, we've, we're behind, we're mm-hmm. behind in our investment, mm-hmm. but, but what's great is that, that we have actually all the resource. We have the humans, we have the people, we mm-hmm. have the experiences. Mm-hmm. One in four women will, one in four women will choose to terminate a pregnancy. Two thirds of those are mothers. That's doesn't matter what your political affiliation is. So we have all the opportunity to be able to leverage these situations and these resources into success. Yeah. And we are seeing some good news, right? We're seeing good news out of Oregon. We're seeing good news out of Maine. We're seeing good news out of Vermont. We're seeing good news out of Nevada, like the, the, the female run legislature, like female run states are actually in fact turning out really progressive bills. Totally. And that's, what's so important. And here's this, let's get super strategic now. So everybody's thinking about 2020 and they're all um, distracted by the thousands of candidates that seem to be running. 5,000 presidential yeah, candidates. like endless. And uh, it's nice because I we're having 20 more just signed up today. I know. Um, it, it's nice because all of these candidates are talking about absolutely everything we yeah. need to talk about because they're all trying to find different places to, to um, talk about whatever issues that they can differentiate themselves from. You know, we've got Cory Booker really calling on men to become repro justice advocates. And we've got Elizabeth Warren outlining a plan on reproductive rights. She's got a plan. She has got a great plan. We've got Kirsten Gillibrand, who's our, our like righteous feminist. She's doing her thing. And it's great. You know, you got Pete Buttigieg, who's on Fox, like, making good points about <laughs> what it means to be an ally. Great, right? This is great. But, but guess what? In 2019, there are some critical elections. We've got Kentucky has statewide elections. We've got Louisiana, Louisiana right. who has their state legislative elections. We've got Mississippi also state legislative elections. We've got Virginia, which we have to take Virginia. We have to flip the Senate. Yeah. We've got to pass the We're ERA close. there. It's so exciting. We've got New Jersey, but you know, always good to like pro-choice champions in New Jersey. Sure. Always good. And You've got thousands and thousands of municipal races happening across the country. So right now, 2019, there are elections every single week. We're looking at the Kansas City, Missouri City Council races are in a few weeks. We've got Denver happening in a few weeks. We've got Memphis, Tennessee is happening next month. It's, it's these critical races that actually don't take a lot of money or a lot of time. And we can have a significant impact by diverting some resources to these places because the pro-choice majority is activated, On the but our system is not necessarily ready to leverage that power. Well, and the media has some role in that too, right? All we see is presidential Correct. rhetoric, presidential this, presidential that, when in fact there are really critical decisions being made um, right. at the local level that is why we're where we are right now. 
And that's the success. That's our future. That's where the success can happen by electing great people. And our key is just really allowing people to step into their positions of leadership and, and, and supporting that. Yeah. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with Heidi Seek. I want to give a special shout out to our community of supporters on Patreon who are making it possible for us to create content that matters for citizens who care. Citizen Podcast was designed for truth seekers, bridge builders, and emerging activists who are yearning to make a difference. We're not afraid to ask hard questions and have a radical dialogue about politics and patriarchy, white supremacy and worthiness. And we're serious about showing up for one another and taking action for the well-being of everyone. But making a good podcast takes a village. And so we're building one on Patreon. By joining our Patreon community for as little as $1 per month, you get lots of good stuff from us, like radical meditations, community forums, and lifestyle content that you can trust. Not only does it keep us going, but it keeps us honest and real and pushing the envelope of courageous conversations that are independent, transparent, and authentic. So check us out on patreon.com slash citizenwell and build with us as we create a culture of well-being that works for everyone. Um, I want to talk about feminine leadership because I feel ah, like you're yes. going there and you embody it. Um, and, you know, after the tragic shooting in Christchurch, we got a glimpse of what that looks like. Um, Mm -hmm. right. With Jacinda Ardern in the way that she responded with grace and empathy, but also in the way that she was so swift in enacting action and passing gun control law, the law, I think within a month. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and Hillary Clinton once referred to, um, women as having a responsibility gene. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I think it's, it's not surprising, right, that women have, have evolved into that, right, given like what women, you know, how women have survived, you know, constant subjugation and inferiority, the ways in which we have always been relegated, the caregiver, um, and also the way in which over time we've accumulated so much wisdom and medicine around healing and learning lessons about how to cope. Um, and I feel like that wisdom... Um, and that truth, you talked about truth before, is in fact making a comeback, right? We are seeing now real, a real embodiment of feminine leadership um, in different countries. We're seeing it in the house. We're seeing it at the state level in a lot of different ways. Um, and it does feel like, and I just, I just mentioned before that, you know, a lot of the states that are in fact passing progressive pro-choice legislation are led by women, women in legislation, women governors. Um, and so I'm just curious, like, what you what is different about feminine and i don't want to assume that it's relegated to like a woman's body but it there is a quality of feminine leadership that feels like that is breaking through the patriarchy um you know relentlessly as you mentioned sort of like analogous to your journey i feel like where it's like mm-hmm. the forest gump of feminine leadership um <laughs> you know it's, it's just trying desperately to break through and it does feel different and i'm just curious as to like what, what you think that looks like? Like, what do we need to be aspiring to? What do we need to be embodying? How do we support one another in calling forth, right? That kind of leadership that can stand up fiercely to the, the, the leadership that we're seeing in like white, patri- the, the minority leadership that you mentioned that that's in like the white patriarchy, right? That, that right now, mm-hmm. right. Um, occupies so many of the houses um, Mm -hmm. of our government? There are two points that I would like to make in response to that question. But first of all, do you think we're so old that folks are going to know what the Forrest Gump of feminism really I don't know. Maybe we should. Did anybody watch that? Did anybody see that movie anymore? Forrest Gump anyway. was a movie that Tom Hanks <laughs> and he, and he just to kept coming these back. Really, these really important historical moments and no one really knew his name, but yeah. he was there. Um, and he survived. He, yeah. And, right? and, and was a critical, it was a critical part in the story of who he was, but also the connections and community that he made. Um, that's kind of, that's what I reflect on uh, that. There's so many people 
who have these lived experiences and have walked journeys in, in our communities that are now stepping into leadership. And that's really reflective of your question. Um, so I wanna answer your question historically and then also talk about a certain type of framing for how we move forward. So historically, we know that the subjugation of women has been part of our culture. It's been thousands and thousands of years that the sacred feminine or feminine energy has been a source of um, suppression, um, brutality. The Inquisition started in 1100. It was basically um, suppression of um, feminine the, the connection of women to their to nature, um, the witch trials, all of that—that that was mm-hmm. something that's been happening for thousands and thousands of years, and millions and millions of women have died as a result of just expressing themselves mm-hmm. and being who they are and expressing their connection to creation and creative energy. So, the aspect of misogyny and suppression underlies our culture, and it is very much what we are seeing in as the the energy of women rise as we have after the um, Hillary Clinton's um, loss of her rightfully elected presidential campaign. um, We have the energy of women coming forward and saying, I am going to take the lead. I'm going to embrace power. We have just new embodiment of authenticity. We have new freedom. We have women standing up and saying, no, it's what we were doing and at the Senate when we were fighting Kavanaugh. Mm-hmm. And so this in, in a lot of ways is a backlash. There's always a backlash. As Rebecca Traster says, we've been in the backlash for mm-hmm. decades. And so we have to honor that this is nothing new. And it does have a, a powerful religious connotation to it. Most of the anti-choice minority is fueled by a concept, concepts that the church is continuing to perpetuate. And that is something that is not changed in thousands of years. So we have to honor that, but also really honor that this time in our life and this time in our society is allowing us to see the truth. So how fascinating it is to be in this time in our democracy where we are seeing what's true. And we are seeing that US United States Constitution is being taxed and tested beyond its 229 years because the Constitution itself was written for white men to control people and power. So it's even being pressed against feminine Mm -hmm. energy and leadership. Mm -hmm. So for me, it is continuing to honor the truth that this is us, women, feminine aspects of leadership, um, collaboration, connection, systemic understanding, connection to nature, connection to community and family, uh, a greater understanding of what we might need to heal. It goes completely against the systems of power that are currently in place and it's going to be hard to break. So it feels awful. It feels terrible because it is like putting two operating systems against each Mm -hmm. other. Mm -hmm. So we have to just tell the truth about that Mm -hmm. and do what we can to hold ourselves in healing space. That's why I so value Citizen Wells' work and the work here on this podcast and everything that you've done because you've connected those two things so Mm -hmm. deeply. Mm -hmm. But the second frame that I just want to bring up here is the concept of reproductive justice. This is a very special frame that I want to make sure to honor because people talk about abortion and they think about reproductive health and reproductive rights and they kind of throw these different words together. But the concept of reproductive justice was actually developed by black women, women of color in their communities, where they were saying, this is not just about abortion rights. This is about creating communities that are healthy where people can thrive in creating communities that are healthy where there is clean water and access to education and we have living wages and our bodies are healthy. And it's, it's much more than just abortion and birth control. While that's a part of it, the concept of reproductive justice is around well-being. And so 
when we use these terms of reproductive rights, health, abortion access, all of that, we want to honor that reproductive justice is actually the frame that is foundational in nature about everything we're talking about. It's intersectional. Yes. And what I, what I am so frustrated about over the, over the course of the last 30 years or just generally in the reproductive rights movement and the political movement, they've put abortion over in this corner. It's a women's issue or it's a, those single issue people or we can't talk about it or it's a, some sort of stigmatized thing or there's shame around sex and men don't want to be involved. And it's over here in, with the Planned Parenthoods of the world, right? When in fact... The concept of reproductive justice and what I like to use the term reproductive freedom is a foundational issue of freedom. And it's a foundational issue of economic justice. And it's a foundational issue of treating women and trans people as human beings Mm -hmm. and allowing us all to live in a thriving way toward our own personal, authentic Mm well-being. And that's what we're talking about. How can we bring that truth together? Mm -hmm. I love that. And I, um, like, I believe in the interdependence of these issues. Yeah. So we need the Democratic Party. We need every elected office. We need anybody who calls himself a Democrat. We need anyone who calls themselves a, pro- a, produ- a progressive to start owning this. Like, don't say, oh, that abortion issue. Oh, I'm personally pro-life. But no, pro-life is not a word. It is not. This is about freedom. This is about respect. This is about bringing the concept of reproductive freedom into a foundational issue. This is about really standing for the well-being of all of people. But it does feel, and I agree with you, but it does feel, because you were talking about the risk of it being isolated. And it and so while I agree with your framing, it does feel isolated in who's showing up for this issue. Like mm-hmm. I didn't see a lot of men marching yesterday. Um, right. And, and reproductive rights is a, is, is an everyone issue, right? Like, like have like bringing fertility and bringing life into the world or not impacts the whole family. And, and so I'm just curious about that because, and, and I remember this with Kavanaugh too. I remember talking to you about this in fact, and being like, where's everyone else, right? Like, like, where are all the men that drank beer with Kavanaugh? Why aren't they here? All my, all the, the men in my life were like, I'm with you in solidarity. And I'm like, no, why aren't you with me here in your body, on your feet, with your fist in the air? And so I do, I do, I am curious about that, why this issue continues to be an issue that women only take responsibility for, whether that's birth control or fertility. Um, and then we have to fight for it. We have to, you know, we, we have to demand it for ourselves. We have to tell these like gut-wrenching stories every time our, our dignity is threatened so that we can prove that we're human and we're worthy of human rights. I just, so I, I do, I hear what you're saying and I feel conflicted because mm-hmm. it, there does, it, it does feel like people have opted out of the conversation because it, it doesn't feel like it's their problem. Right. Well, there's no simple answer to this, obviously. We're talking about systemic transformation and, you know, men are 100% responsible for all intended preg- unintended pregnancies. 100% in fact. Yeah. So, you know, um, so we should take a moment on this, on this conversation to call in the men. Please yeah. join us. Yeah. You are now part of the reproductive rights movement and yeah. reproductive justice movement. Um, although reproductive justice is a movement of women of color. So, you know, use the term um, accurately. Um, so but come men, to the table. Come to us. Come on in. So we need you. Yes. Um, Well, Because the difference between the 70% of pro-choice nation that you're naming and the very few people that are marching and fighting is just that, I think. I'm not saying it's about men, but I'm saying it's like about the people who are showing up and not showing up. It's not enough to be like, I'm for this. Right. Um, So there's a, we can analyze the problem a little bit. And I'm going to go back to the strategy of vote pro-choice, which is a lot of it is about education. How many of us were fully educated about our sexual health and well-being. How many of us across the country, we have abstinence-only education in some of these states. There are so many people and men that actually don't know how how women's bodies work. We're seeing it in the state legislatures. These folks don't have a clue yeah, and we, what yeah. pregnancy actually is. And we don't want the culture to teach them. 
oh my goodness, right? And um, access, all the access to porn is not the way to learn about these things. So elect pro-choice school board members that yeah. are willing to put policies in That's place right. that have comprehensive sexuality education so that kids are actually understanding how bodies work. That's right. So systemic change for sure. Yeah. Um, but we also have to address the symptom as well as the foundation of the disease. Please, men, welcome. We welcome you. You are <laughs> part of this too. We also have to take responsibility for we haven't actually created engagement channels at that much. And there is a, a men's pro-choice, right? Oh, yes. Um, men for Choice is mm-hmm. just launching their national work out of Chicago. They're a wonderful organization. There are other organizations too, but they're doing some of the more direct work that's The really systemic work, yeah. Yeah. So it's really quite extraordinary. I'm, I'm particularly fond of them or we're partners with them. Awesome. Um, but we, we do welcome, we do welcome the men and I will take responsibility for the fact that the reproductive rights movement was really focused on people who prioritized abortion. We were not talking to the masses, to pro-choice nation for many, many years because we were just working with our people that prioritize these issues. And so now we, that's what we, it's to our detriment that we did this. Um, so we welcome you now and we are happy to um, have your partnership and um, please write lots of checks. <laughs> I just wanted to make sure everyone heard that. Please write <laughs> lots of checks. Yes, to your local reproductive justice organizations, Men for Choice, vote, uh, National vote Abortion Choice. Fund, local abortion funds. Yeah. Um, please, Support your please local please candidates. Give. Yeah, yeah, local Senate. Get involved in your state legislative candidates. Uh, that will change everything. Yeah. So I want to, um, you mentioned healing on, and I, you know, and we're like an organization that's standing at the intersection of healing and politics. So I definitely want to touch on that. Um, and there has been some really powerful healing, I think, um, over the last couple years in the Me Too um, movement, thank you, Tarana Burke, in the Why I Didn't Report movement, in the Kavanaugh experience, um, and most recently in the You Know Me, in the I Am One in Four, in the Shout Your Abortion. Um, there's been a lot of healing, and it's been hard. You and I were at the Kavanaugh um you know, protests together, listening to like story after story after story. And it was brutal um, mm-hmm. for the people telling terrible. the stories. It was hard to hear. Um, it brought up all my shit. Um, and I know yours too. And so, um, and so I know there's healing that and, and I think it's hard. Um, but, you know, it does feel like, and, and I had an abortion when I was 20 um, and I, you know, I'm super transparent, especially on this podcast. I've pretty much said all the things. But I, I rarely tell my story about abortion. I, I have rarely spoken it to um, people. Very few people in my life know about it. And I've never really spoken about it publicly until now, apparently. And um, and I just, I'm curious about that. Like, the, what what is the stigma around abortion that makes it so hard to talk about? And for me, harder to talk about than sexual assault, harder to talk about, I mean, really, than rape. Um is it shame? Is it, um, is it, you know, Catholic fucked up, you know, <laughs> indoctrination? I, I don't know. I'm just curious what your thoughts are around that. Um, and the ways perhaps that I know there's an incredible organization called Exhale. They have basically built like a culture of community care around people who have had an abortion to really hold space for story. Do you know this organization? Oh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. To hold space for story and for support and for community care. Like that's basically what they exist for. And I think they're called Exhale Pro Voice, I think is mm-hmm. the name of, of, of the organization. And so I'm just curious about like your your thoughts around why is it so hard for people yeah, to, to come is. clean around abortion? And then what are the ways in which we can turn towards one another? So that not just so that we can like do whatever healing is needed, but so that we can also like fiercely be advocating for choice, fiercely be advocating for control of our bodies, fiercely be advocating for the way in which we um, make decisions about family planning. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, these are some deep, deep issues. So um it, interestingly, like you, the story of our sexual assaults or the experiences that we've had in that regard 
are somewhat easier to tell, right? Yeah, what um, is that? Curiously, right? Um, but okay, so we know for sure that there's a lot of cultural shame around sexuality. We know that the suppression of women's sexuality is a thousands of year issue. Um, we know that we don't know anything about our bodies because our sex ed is terrible in this right. country. And We've been so objectified. We, yeah, this baseline, the baseline is not good. And it doesn't set up authenticity for the feminine physical experience. It just doesn't. And so one in four women have chosen to terminate a pregnancy before the age of 45, and two-thirds of those are mothers. Mm -hmm. What's not in there is, according to the National Institute for Reproductive Health, 87% of those people do not regret their choice. Yeah, I don't regret it. So what's that about, right? So where is the power in our decision? And it is the suppression of not only our agency, And I think um, there was an incredible article that was in the, I think it was The Nation this week, written by Lori Penny. Oh my God, The New Republic. The New Republic. She's my favorite writer of all time. I just want to say that out loud. (laughs) Yeah, the the criminalization of women's bodies is all about conservative male power. That women, as they wake up into their agency, the sexual power, the sexual expression of feminine energy is very, very um, transformative. You know, if you think about it, it's why the Catholic Church exists and it's the largest nonprofit organization on the planet is to suppress the creative power of God, you know? And what we're talking about is really a relationship of creative energy and it's really intense. And so for us to own our decisions, to own our freedom is to completely disrupt systems of power. And so for me, it's, I personally, I mean, I've had, I also had an abortion. I was 31 years old. I'd just gotten out of a divorce. My life was chaotic. I didn't take my birth control pills on time. I accidentally got pregnant um, with a partner that I didn't want to be a co-parent with. And I have no regrets whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And I'm so grateful for that decision. I lived in San Francisco. It was totally covered, no problem. And um, I'm so grateful for that decision, that choice, that option. And I decided not to, that I, it wasn't my path to have children. And oh my God, how grateful I am that I had that option, that I can live a life of vibrancy and service. And so many people, depending on where they live, do not have that option. And I mm-hmm. am, um, and how scary that must be for men in power who um, know that I'm out there. Mm-hmm. I would be scared of you. I would be scared of you. I think there's something really though, like important about what you said around agency and, and the way in which we've been taught to not trust ourselves, mm-hmm. to not trust our bodies, mm-hmm. to not trust, to not love our bodies. To well, not, I think that's exactly right. Right. And to not trust our choices and then how that gets sort of somehow hooked in. Right to a choice that we make for all of the right reasons, right? right. For the health and well-being of ourselves and for all of the people that we're in relationship with. And yet that indoctrination of like, we're not worthy of making that choice for ourselves. And we're seeing that literally replicated in these laws. Like you don't get to choose. Um, And how undignified, and And we believe that, we buy into that. Totally. And the terrifying nature of the feminine sexual force that... is we see it across the country, right? You know, like we were talking earlier, Alabama's laws are actually more suppressive than Saudi Arabia. Yeah, that's right. there are countries that are wrapping women in brokenness. Yeah. Why? Because the terrifying power of the feminine sexual creative energy um, that can be manifested through women-identified people, transgender people. um, And we know that that is just a, a force of chaos, I suppose, for people in power. And that how important it is for us to create connection to our own community well-being, but also connections with each other. Like how can I hold space for you to tell your story in a way that's filled with love and authenticity? How can we do that for others? How can we bring men into that conversation and them saying, I benefited from my partner choosing to not have another child? Or thank God, 
my girlfriend 10 years ago decided to make a different choice because I was free to pursue my dreams. Mm-hmm. You know, men are, are equally um, impacted, are equally impacted and they benefit from reproductive freedom. And it's, um, it's really, it's really a, a unique place that we're in right now that we're seeing the transformation of the United States constitution. We're seeing the transformation of what it means to be a leader. And we're seeing the wounds of our communities and history manifest themselves right now. And I guess the question we have to ask ourselves is what are we capable of holding the space for and what are we going to do about it? Well, and I think also, you know, I'm thinking about Adrienne Marie Brown and pleasure activism and how she's really, I think, challenging and inspiring us to reach further, um, right? To like reach for pleasure. And Jill Filipovich wrote a great book called H Spot, which is, which is really about like, you know, just aiming for equality is just so fucking baseline. Like that's the bare minimum. Like, why can't we aim for fulfillment? Why can't we aim for pleasure, you know, and ecstatic feeling? And God forbid we actually did in fact name and claim those things for ourselves, then the patriarchy would really freak out. Um, So I do think- And I think we also have to reclaim God and grace. Because what a lot of what we hear in the abortion- and the anti-choice movement is that they're having these struggles with God. Right. I was just talking to someone from Planned Parenthood who was working on a Mississippi ballot initiative back in 2011. And she said these, these, these people who considered themselves, I'm going to put this in quotes, pro-life, were terrified to vote against a, a, an abortion ban ballot initiative because they didn't want God to know. Yeah, they'd be damned. And so and that's this, the church. Is, this is what we're dealing with. Yeah. And so how can we reclaim our connection to ourselves and our own spiritual lives that we may heal and be able to understand what freedom really means? Well, and I totally resonate with that because, you know, I can see how even intellectually I don't buy into that. I've been indoctrinated into that with all of my Catholic upbringing. <laughs> so like what part of me was like, you're going to hell, you know, right. what part of me was like, you know, you know, you're wrong, you know, um, how dare you? And, and what part of me believed that? So I think that's right. Like how do we reclaim for ourselves um, a sense of sacred, right? A sense of divinity, a sense of, of, of God and grace that allows us to really be at peace um, yeah. with all of the decisions that we've made and, and with who we are, you know, just as we are exactly as we are. Um, and it's so funny cause I, I really think that, um, you know, faith plays such a big part in healing. Um, I don't, oh, yes. I don't think and we how, can exclude God in that conversation. No. And how grateful we are for the faith leaders that are part of yeah. this movement. You know, Jesus said the kingdom of God is within you. And the choices that we make for our lives and the way that we relate to each other is from that place of inner love and peace inside of ourselves. And the Bible just says nothing about abortion. It That's talks right. about life beginning at breath. And, and so allowing the concept of, of um, evangelical religion to own the, the sacred truth of what the trajectory of our lives should be is just an inappropriate use of these really powerful sacred processes. And it's a lie. And, and it's not yeah. true. Back to truth. It's not, it's not true. It's not true. So, you know, this is why I definitely appreciate your podcast so much mm-hmm. and the work that you do because you allow this space to connect the United States Constitution with the transformation of our, our relationship our to sexuality and grace. <laughs> well, listen, it's also why I seek out leadership like yours, <laughs> because I know that you're not just leading from your mind, you're leading from your heart <laughs> and you are constantly meaning making um, around like what's right, um, what's moral, um, what's good for everyone, <laughs> what's just, um, what what's am I, re- true. what's true, no, what's true, what what's am I true. responsible for? You know, what are we all responsible for? I mean, that's sort of like, the, that's, those are the questions we're asking here. And you embody that I think in every, in everything you do. Um, all right, here's my last question for you. And then we're going to wrap it. Mm-hmm. And it's just around the idea of sisterhood. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think it's a part of healing. And I also think it's a part of how we organize, um, and how we fight and how we love. <laughs> um, but you know, what, how do we, what, what is your vision for how we get together, 
um, for how we come together um, to, to reclaim, right, our dignity, to reclaim our rights, um, to reclaim the White House. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> but for real, like all of that feels connected to me, right? Um, you know, what is your vision for how we work together? Well, this is going to be hard because it's going to require us to admit some defeat. So here we are in the in 2019 facing the the stress of the United States Constitution kind of not working anymore. And we've got the stress of the systems of power that we know to be true. We also have the stress of abortion rights and reproductive freedom in the United States of America at threat as it never has been before. And so if we are not willing to step back and say, wow, maybe we should rethink our strategy, we've got a real problem. Mm -hmm. So it's going to be tough. And so I think sisterhood means that we are going to have to be present with each other have some very difficult conversations about what's true and we have to open our arms and our heart to be in community with each other in a way that is more expansive than ever before. Mm. And that might mean that we include into the reproductive, well, that has to mean that we include into the reproductive rights movement, other organizations that have not been part of the reproductive rights movement Mm -hmm. before. So that includes women who have never engaged and men who have never engaged Mm -hmm. in this issue. It includes really framing reproductive justice and bringing in immigration activists and environmental activists and being present for those movements. We're talking the most intersectional engagement ever. Mm -hmm. So it's building relationships. It's conversations with people that we might not have ever worked with before. And it's just being in community and telling the Mm -hmm. truth. We've got Mm -hmm. to start telling our stories. Mm -hmm. And that's what I'm committed to doing. Mm -hmm. Now, again, strategically, I want us all to be electing down-ballot pro-choice champions, particularly women of color in every election everywhere as much as possible. I think that's a great strategy. And that's what I'm hoping we're all going to be doing. And that's what the work that I do is about. But, you know, I'm also spending a lot of time just having conversations with people and organizers and organizations that I may have not had a conversation with before. And I would say that those two things are not separate. Like your your strategy to to reclaim the down-ballot feels as spiritual to me. as any courageous conversation is. Um, and I think the, the more we start seeing like political strategy as spiritual strategy, the better off that we're going to be. These are not isolated or separate. It's not spirit on the side and politics, you know, over here. It's like, these things are like what we, like what's at stake is our spirit, is our humanity, is our yeah. dignity and politics and strategy and community and healing is the way we get there. And so I see all of them kind of, you know, it's going to take, it's going to also take some humility saying, Oh, wow, we messed that up. So yeah. And and some capacity to to fail. That's going to be hard. Yeah. I think that's right. Like, I think we need to build some muscle around courage, um, the capacity to fail, to know that we're not going to win everything. Um, the capacity to grieve the things that don't, aren't working anymore. Or stepping back and saying, well, that didn't work. What do you think I should have done? Yeah, that's right. Or maybe we should rethink our strategy or, Hey, funders, maybe we should like think about putting money in a different way or board of directors. Hmm. I think we're going to have to go in a different direction. It's going to be hard. Curiosity. Mm, curiosity, curiosity, constant curiosity. And I think interrogation, you know, well, I just want to say thank you for your 30 years, 30, I'm not, I'm not trying to age you, (laughs) but 30 years of service, (laughs) defending our bodies, defending our uteruses, defending our reproductive (laughs) rights, um, defending humanity and our families and our community. I mean, that all feels part of that too. And for really, um, like, just giving us direction um, in, and meaning um, and perspective in where we are and where we need to go. For all the listeners, we're going to include Heidi's manifesto slash blog <laughs> um, and all of the Vote Pro-Choice um, resources that y'all can connect to and benefit from. And, um, and we're going to be hearing a lot more from you, I think, in the next couple months and certainly leading up to the election as we try to, like, navigate this path and 
hopefully retake our country and our and our soul. <laughs> it's going to be quite a journey. I'm delighted to be on it with you. Thank you. I love you. <laughs> See you soon. While this podcast is coming to an end, our work in the world is just beginning. This week's call to action is to vote pro-choice. Download the guide at voteprochoice.us. And you can follow Heidi on Instagram at Heidi Speaks. Special thanks to our producer Trevor Exter and DJ Drez for the amazing soundtrack. You can check out his music at djdrez.com. And thank you for being here today. You can stay in the know and engaged by subscribing to our weekly newsletter, Well Read, at citizenwell.org. Citizen Podcast is community-inspired and crowdsourced. That's how we keep it real. Join our community on Patreon for as little as $1 per month so that we can keep doing the work of curating content that matters for citizens who care. And don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts and share the love by telling your friends to check us out.